David Crow, and this is episode 253 of The Infectious Myth. Email me at david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com, crow with an E. Join the discussion and like us at facebook.com slash theinfectiousmyth. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at infectiousmyth. Listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on prn.fm, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or other programs. You can listen to any of the last five episodes over the phone by dialing the U.S. number 701-719-0990. prn.fm has voicemail, so call 862-800-6805 and leave a message and indicate that it's for the infectious myth. Remember that long-distance charges may apply. I don't know you're a listener until I hear from you, so send me a message letting me know how you stay in touch with the show and what you like about it. If you include your mailing address, I'll send you a little thank you gift, one of the bookmarks I make by hand using my own photographs. I do really love to hear from you. Thank you for everybody who has recently donated to the show, either one-time donations via PayPal or uh, commitments to monthly donations via Patreon and LiberaPay. Uh, when I have a little bit more time in a near episode, I will thank some people individually for this. It really does help. It gives me a little bit more freedom to spend more time studying the coronavirus, which is the topic, again, of today's show. I think this is going to go on for a while. There's a lot of issues to explore, issues that the mainstream media is not considering. They seem to be scared uh, about discussing anything that might contradict the position that they've got them into. Uh, Remington Nevin has been on the show before, uh, so let's go to another interview with him on the, the coronavirus this time. Dr. Remington Nevin is a Vermont-based physician, epidemiologist, and expert on the adverse effects of antimalarial drugs, particularly mefloquine. He is board certified in occupational medicine, public health, and general preventive medicine. Formerly, he was a U.S. Army major. Now he's executive director of the Quinism Foundation, dedicated to studying the medical disorders caused by mefloquine, tofenoquine, and related quinoline drugs, which includes chloroquine and uh, hydroxychloroquine, which we're probably going to talk about today because of the coronavirus. He has testified before governments in the, in the U.S., Canada, and the U.K., and has given evidence to the Irish Department of Defense. He's worked with lawyers in cases of injury from these drugs. I've previously talked with uh, Dr. Nevin twice about mefloquine, one member of the family, but now in the age of coronavirus panic, chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine are in the news as potential panaceas. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Nevin. Well, it's great to be back. Uh, thanks for having me, David. Yes. Well, I, I appreciate your work and, and kind of a, a center of knowledge um, in these areas. So I, I was kind of surprised um, when malaria drugs were being proposed as uh, something against um, a, a virus. Malaria is a parasite. Which is, which is much, much bigger than even a bacteria. And, and so compared to a 100 nanometer coronavirus particle, it's um, a monster. So how could it be that a medicine that has some effectiveness against a parasite could also work uh, against this virus? W what is the theory behind this? Yeah, sure, a very reasonable uh, question. So I, I suppose to take a step back, 
we should appreciate that this class of drug, the quinoline drugs, again, which includes chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, and uh, the infamous drug uh, mefloquine, uh, they all have uh, a remarkable, potentially toxic property in, in common, which underlies, we think, their uh, antiparasitic uh, action, but, but which also underlies their likely effectiveness uh, for many other uh, conditions. So, so this class of drug, the quinoline drugs, has a remarkable chemical property in that they're able to readily cross barrier membranes, the lipid the membranes that separate the cell uh, from the outside and, and that further separate internal structures of the cell from the rest of the cell's mm. uh, contents. These, these drugs have this remarkable property where rather than needing some sort of receptor or gate to pass uh, through, they can just barge right across. And it's, it's because they have um, lipophilic or, or, or fat-loving uh, qualities uh, uh, to them. When these drugs penetrate into certain areas of uh, the human cell or certain areas of the malaria parasite, they encounter an acidic environment, a lot of uh, extra protons uh, floating around, and, and the chemicals become changed. The protons attach themselves to the quinoline core, and that modifies their ability to then exit across the membrane. And so the result is that these compounds accumulate at many hundreds to thousands of times their external concentration in these particular areas in the malaria parasite and in the human cell. So in the malaria parasite, this accumulation, we think, is what underlies their anti-malarial activity. And in human cells, it could very well be, although we don't know, it could very well be that the accumulation of these drugs in, in certain um, internal cell structures precludes the virus from replicating effectively. And it may be this property that underlies uh, the, the antiviral activity that's been observed in test tubes. Now, unfortunately, it may also be this property, this tendency of these drugs to accumulate in certain uh, cell compartments that may underlie the drug's inherent neurotoxicity as well. I mean, that was the first thing I thought of when you said it was accumulating <coughs> in the human cells and not leaving. And um, I know with mefloquine, um, that one of the characteristics is not just that they're side effects, but they can be permanent. Is that a characteristic of the entire class? Yes, we, we think so. We, we think that all quinolines share to some extent the, the tendency to cause neurotoxicity. Now, it's important to emphasize that not everyone who takes these drugs will experience this risk. These, these drugs are what we call idiosyncratic neurotoxicants, which, which basically means that some people will experience adverse effects as a result of neurotoxicity, and other people will seemingly have a complete immunity to this effect. Now, I suppose it goes without saying, but perhaps I should emphasize, that in order for a drug to be a neurotoxicant and, and to damage cells of the central nervous system, the drug has to penetrate into the central nervous system, and it has to reside there for a certain amount of time in order for it to exert its neurotoxic action. And it could be, and we don't know this for, for certain, but it could be that in some people, their central nervous systems are able to uh, detoxify or metabolize or even just efflux or push out this class of drug before they can cause damage. And it, it could be that in a susceptible minority, the miserable minority, if you will, these drugs do tend to accumulate and do act as toxicants uh, in the central uh, nervous system. And, and we believe that it's the drug's inherent neurotoxicity 
or this idiosyncratic neurotoxicity in some susceptible individuals that underlies their permanent adverse effects. Most drugs are thought of as having side effects as a result of some sort of molecular receptor action while the drug is, is present in the body and that on removal of the drug, this receptor or molecular action goes away and physiology returns to normal. But right. if the drug is acting as a toxicant and actually results in, in the death or the injury of cells, then it's not surprising that these adverse effects could become permanent, as we believe is the case with the quinolines. In some of the early Chinese research, they or reviews of patients, they, sh they showed that the average age, I think, was 55 or 60 of patients, and uh, about 50% had pre-existing health conditions. The Italians found it not in, in patients, but in the deceased, that the average age was 80, and uh, approximately 50% had three or more pre-existing health conditions, and essentially nobody in those who were deceased had no pre-existing health conditions. So is it a concern that the side effects of the quinoline drugs would be greater in people who were, were very old, say over 80, and who had conditions like diabetes, heart disease, liver disease, kidney disease, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, so there's really, there's really two points, I suppose, that, that we should emphasize because they're distinct. So drugs of this class, chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine in particular, are well known and are, are well appreciated as having some potentially serious uh, ocular, uh, meaning affecting the eye, and cardiac mm -hmm. adverse effects. These are well described in the literature, and there's really no disagreement uh, about uh, these. The, the ocular effects are probably less of a concern with this experimental use against COVID-19, but the cardiovascular effects, particularly with high doses of these drugs, are certainly a matter for concern. And, and as you allude to, because these drugs are used right now, um, off-label or experimentally, primarily uh, in the attempted uh, treatment of, of severely ill hospitalized patients, there's a good chance already that candidates for these drugs will have risk factors that, that may make use of the drugs even uh, riskier. So, so th this, I think, is being recognized already that uh, elderly folks uh, who may be more at risk from COVID-19, who you may wish to try these drugs on, they may be at increased risk of uh, particularly the cardiac uh, adverse effects from uh, chloroquine and, and hydroxychloroquine. Now, my group's concern, my, my research area of interest, the neuropsychiatric effects of these drugs, we really don't think that one demographic group in particular is more at risk than another. We, we simply don't know what it is about people mm -hmm. that, that render them part of this miserable minority. It, it could very well be some otherwise silent genetic risk factor. It could very well be some sort of enzymatic um, difference that results in, in these drugs and really only these drugs uh, accumulating in the brain. And so, and so this would otherwise be a silent uh, genetic uh, variation, but we simply don't know. And unfortunately, the only way we can determine who is susceptible to these uh, potentially permanent effects and who isn't is to give the drugs. And if you experience early prodromal symptoms, such as vivid dreams, insomnia, anxiety, depression, confusion, um, the very symptoms that are listed in the mefloquine 
label as requiring the drug's immediate discontinuation, then, then we think really all drugs of this class should be discontinued. Now, of course, you can, you can appreciate the difficulty of trying to follow this guidance if, if you are concerned about potential neuropsychiatric risk from these drugs and you're in the hospital uh, as a patient and you're given a high dose of hydroxychloroquine, well, first of all, you, you may not be able to, to recognize or report that you're having neuropsychiatric symptoms early during uh, dosing. And, and second of all, of course, you, know, the, you have potentially a greater fear, which is dying of, of uh, COVID. So concern about neuropsychiatric effects, unfortunately, as with malaria, tends to, to either be overlooked or get lost. Uh, I, uh, I think that some of these patients will already have some of those side effects. Like you talked about um, fear, I think, is, is kind of a side effect, like paranoia or depression, things like that. But I mean, an elderly person isolated in a hospital thinking they're gonna die of coronavirus may already have those. So it would be hard <laughs> to tell that these were I mean, they're not new with, with the chloroquine drugs, but they might be increased. But that's uh, a bit more subtle of a point. So, so I, I think there are two main areas of potential confounding or symptom mis misattribution in the use that you're describing of these drugs in, in hospitalized patients. So to take a step back, I, I think that it's, it's fairly certain that with use thus far of these drugs at, at somewhat high doses, uh, thousands or even tens of thousands of times around the world uh, for, for attempted treatment of COVID-19, we're, we're almost certainly going to have seen some neuropsychiatric reactions due to nothing more than the drug. Symptoms such as dizziness, vertigo, disequilibrium, ringing in the ears, or psychiatric symptoms such as anxiety, depression, paranoia, even psychosis, cognitive changes, or in extreme cases, seizures. With, with use of so many doses of the drug at high doses and in so many people, I think the potential for these effects is very real. But the problem is that there are two main reasons why these effects may be either misattributed or overlooked completely. And the first is, is something you alluded to, which is that the, the prevalence of neuropsychiatric symptoms is already going to be fairly high, either because people come into the hospital uh, from COVID-19 with pre-existing mental health conditions that these symptoms could easily be misattributed to. If someone mm -hmm. has a history of depression and they're in the hospital and they have new anxiety, it's very easy to, to, to say, well, your anxiety is just a manifestation of your mm -hmm. pre-existing um, depression. And of course, even in folks who are mentally healthy at baseline, the fact that they're going through a traumatic experience of living through a pandemic where, you know, in, in this particular case, they have every reason to be afraid that they may die, the psychiatrists might argue that this is a traumatic experience that might otherwise qualify for a later diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. So it wouldn't be unsurprising in that case that symptoms of uh, nightmares, um, anxiety, uh, and so on that develop early on could be uh, an acute stress reaction or the early manifestations of PTSD, when in fact they, they could be due to nothing more than the drug. So there's that aspect. But even more concerning, I think, which makes the attribution of these adverse effects of, of quinoline drugs to the drugs even more challenging, is, is that there are reports that COVID disease itself is causing neuropsychiatric effects. So we've heard of people suffering hallucinations, seizures, mm. and 
whole range of psychiatric disorders uh, and symptoms that are being attributed to nothing more than the neurologic effects of the hypoxia and high fever um, right. and general septic uh, or, or near septic state that accompanies uh, severe hospitalized disease. So one might think, well, this is very challenging. How are you going to tease out what's due to quinolines uh, right. and what's due to the broader context or medical history or COVID disease? And David, this is nothing new because we, we've dealt with this problem for, cent for, for decades and arguably uh, centuries with quinine um, with use of these drugs in treatment of malaria, right? Because, because malaria has the same uh, sort of uh, severe hospitalization picture and febrile picture that we see with COVID. It can have uh, some similar clinical manifestations. And of course, use of the, the quinolines for prevention, uh, particularly, is, is commonly done in environments where people may misattribute symptoms to the, the broader context. So use of the drugs in military environments where there are opportunities for traumatic stressors. So, so we've dealt with these problems before, and, and we have been able to tease out uh, nonetheless. You, you have to be looking uh, for them. There's a big study in England with the National Health Service. I think they said 5,000 uh, patients. And uh, the, one of the trial leaders did say there's, there's lots of you know, information on social media about patients who've recovered after hydroxychloroquine. Uh, this proves nothing. There's no evidence to support its use yet. But he didn't say anything about concerns about the, the side effects. And if you're not thinking about the side effects and you're, you know, you're dealing with a complex patient with age and pre-existing health conditions and other drugs and isolation and all kinds of other things that could affect their mental state, um, it, it does seem like it's easy to overlook. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and my expectation is that despite our group's efforts to raise awareness of, of how common these acute and chronic neuropsychiatric effects are, it will, it will likely be some years before uh, I'm approached and my group is approached by people who are still struggling with chronic neuropsychiatric symptoms after COVID, who, who finally, on reading up about this, make the realization that maybe this is nothing more than the adverse effects of these drugs. This, this happened, of course, with use of these drugs against malaria, and there's every reason to think that, that these symptoms will continue to be misattributed, continue to be uh, overlooked with any potential expanded use of these drugs against uh, COVID. Unfortunately, that's just the way um, it seems to go uh, with, with these uh, drugs. But, but if there is any silver lining, I do think there, there's far more awareness now that all drugs of this class, not just mefloquine, but even hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, people recognize the quin ending and, and recognize, recognize that these are similar drugs. The um, statements of uh, proponents of, of the drug's broader use notwithstanding, and, and therefore they could have uh, similar effects. So, so I certainly encourage clinicians and patients to, to be aware of these potential effects and, and to, to be on the lookout for them. But our ability to get this message out to the, the entire clinical community is unfortunately quite limited. We haven't had the success that we've wanted to have. Well, let's um, talk a little bit about the specific drugs because there are two um, members, chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, that have been referenced a lot. So how old is the chloroquine drug? And uh, you know, what's, 
in general being the experience with its usage over time. Yeah, so really uh, quite a fascinating story behind both the chlor chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. All, all members of the quinoline class are very interesting drugs, and, and there's quite a bit of intrigue uh, and history behind uh, all of these. But the history of chloroquine dates back to the mid-1930s. It was first synthesized by German uh, researchers, and, and quite incredibly, and, and, and many subsequent malariologists would say quite erroneously, Early German scientists researching this drug, which was named Resichin at the time, uh, thought that it was too toxic for wider use in humans. They had administered a test dose to some clinical subjects and apparently were quite shocked at the adverse effects that they observed. So, so further research, German research on chloroquine or Resichin was abandoned in the mid-30s, but uh, American interest in the drug began during the Second World War. And, and just for a little bit of history, the anti-malarial drug that had been commonly used uh, at, this, at this point, up until that point, had been the naturally occurring drug quinine. Quinine, which was mm. extracted from the bark of the cinchona tree, uh, discovered in South America many hundreds of years ago, permitted essentially European colonization of the tropics. The reason the British were able to colonize Africa and Asia and Southeast Asia was because they were able to administer small doses of quinine to all of their troops every day. And that became the basis for the, the popular gin and tonic, uh, quinine being the bitterant in uh, tonic water. So, so we had used quinine uh, and tonic water as a fairly effective anti-malarial prophylactic drug for, for quite some time. And as war approached in the South Pacific in the late 1930s, as our country was aware that there was a possibility of imminent land battles taking place in the South Pacific for America's future uh, survival, we began to panic because supplies of quinine had been essentially quarantined or, or blocked by the by the Axis powers. The, mm -hmm. the plantations of the Sincona tree in, in Java uh, were essentially under a German and Japanese um, a naval uh, a quarantine. So we faced the prospect of fighting months-long land battles in malaria-infested areas of the South Pacific against the Japanese with no anti-malarial drug. This would have been disastrous. Tens of thousands, perhaps even hundreds of thousands of Americans would have died from nothing more than malaria. So the search was on to find synthetic alternatives. And, and the drug that we resorted to originally was a very toxic quinoline drug called adabrin or quinacrin. It's, it's, it's often not considered a quinoline, but adabrin or quinacrin is essentially chloroquine with an extra ring attached mm -hmm. to the quinoline core. So it, it structurally shares a lot in common with chloroquine, which, which had been synthesized back in the mid-1930s, but that we were unaware of at that time. The problem with quinacrine, besides turning people's skin yellow, um, was that it made soldiers crazy. And it was well known uh, among senior levels of military leadership that if you gave quinacrine or adabrin to you know, large, large units, you, you'd get a handful of cases of, of fairly severe paranoid or confusional psychosis. But this, this was thought to be a risk worth taking. And I suppose in retrospect, the survival of our nation being on the line, it was not an unreasonable thing to do. But they didn't inform troops of these effects. It, it, discussion of the neuropsychiatric adverse effect profile of quinacrine was, was essentially considered a state secret, and one mm. could be punished for discussing it. So obviously the search was on for a safer drug, and it was during World War II, during a massive drug development and discovery effort, that we, ch that we chanced upon chloroquine and recognized that the Germans had actually discovered it earlier. And, and we thought it was to, to our great luck that this was a drug that they had abandoned, we, we thought prematurely, that 
could end up being a, a magic bullet in our mm. eyes uh, against malaria. So, so unfortunately, it, chloroquine wasn't commercialized in time to be used during World War II. We continued using Adabrin. But right after the war, chloroquine uh, came into broad use. But, but it still had some of the same effects that marred uh, quinacrine. It, it, it produced some neuropsychiatric symptoms and, and, and a much more notable neurologic adverse effect profile, much more common dizziness, disequilibrium, vertigo, mm. visual disturbances. And, and so the search was on after World War II to find a less toxic version of chloroquine. And in 1950, hydroxychloroquine was synthesized. And, and, and it's a very simple substitution. Chloroquine has an arm, a side chain with two terminal methyl groups, CH3, and they substituted one methyl group for a hydroxy group, changing, I think, the metabolic properties uh, mm -hmm. of the, the drug, um, made it, we think, far less uh, poorly tolerated. Uh, hydroxychloroquine doesn't have the same common adverse effects we think that, that chloroquine does. But in the process of making it less toxic and better tolerated, it seems to have also become less effective as an anti-malarial. So, so hydroxychloroquine was never adopted as an anti-malarial. Chloroquine, despite its problems, can, continued to be used as our anti-malarial drug of choice. We figured we'd use quinacrine, very toxic drug. Uh, chloroquine's not ideal, but it's better than quinacrine, so let's continue using it because we need an effective anti-malarial. And interestingly, hydroxychloroquine became used by the rheumatology community. And, and the reason for that is because it was noticed in World War II that all those soldiers who were at risk of going crazy from quinacrine or adabrin, many of them with skin disorders or rheumatological or what we now know as autoimmune disorders, they got better. Their skin condition got better, their rheumatologic conditions got better, and, and the rheumatology community noticed this. And when they using, were put on, they got, it got better after they were put on hydroxychloroquine? So, so this was during the Second World War when we were still using the very dangerous drug Adabrin or quinacrine. Mm. But it was noticed incidentally that these soldiers taking quinacrine to prevent malaria, their rheumatologic conditions were in many cases being, being controlled or even okay. Okay. almost cured. So, so the rheumatology community was using quinacrine uh, after the war but they obviously sought a, a drug that had the same effectiveness, but with, without the psychosis-inducing adverse effects. And so, and so they mostly substituted uh, hydroxychloroquine uh, in due okay. course for the, the earlier drugs. So, so that's why today you see hydroxychloroquine or Plaquenil mostly used by rheumatologists. You see chloroquine used less so by rheumatologists, typically when hydroxychloroquine isn't cutting it. Um, and, and still being used rarely against um, malaria in areas where there isn't uh, resistance. So that's the uh, a fairly long history of, of okay. those drugs. So but that may explain why there's, there's proposed usage, both chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, because maybe people are thinking hydroxychloroquine is less toxic, so we'll have less problems with adverse effects, but maybe it won't be as effective depending on exactly what the mode of operation is. Now, the Chinese stated, and I, I think this is just a news article, I, I don't think there's any data that's been published on this, the results from more than 100 patients have demonstrated that chloroquine phosphate is superior to the controlled treatment in inhibiting the exacerbation of pneumonia, improving lung imaging findings, promoting virus negative conversion, and shortening the disease course. Severe adverse reactions to chloroquine phosphate were not noted in the aforementioned patients. But a Brazil study of chloroquine, not hydroxychloroquine, 
was canceled because patients developed irregular heart rates that increased their risk of a potentially fatal heart arrhythmia. And one of the authors of the Brazilian study, Dr. Marcus Lacerda, said high dosage, the high dosage that the Chinese were using is very toxic and will kill more patients. So, so do you know anything about the Chinese and Brazilian experiments on chloroquine? Yeah, I, I've looked over uh, all these uh, papers. So, so in general, the, the studies that have been done thus far uh, are observational. They lack proper control groups. Uh, they lack mm. the typical controlling for confounding um, that high-quality studies overcome through uh, randomization. Um, and we, we unfortunately really can't draw many conclusions from the limited studies that have been done so far, with the, with the exception, I would say, of a new VA study that just came out. Um, but, but that being said, uh, these, these findings of... Uh, fairly severe and life-threatening toxicity with high doses is not surprising at all. In, in some cases, these, these studies have involved the use of many thousands of milligrams uh, of uh, either uh, drug. And we know that using many grams of these drugs all at once uh, will significantly increase the proportion not only who, who develop the well-known ocular and cardiac uh, toxicities, but but at these high doses, you increase the proportion who become susceptible to these idiosyncratic neuro neuropsychiatric effects. So it wouldn't be surprising at all to discover cases of, of hallucinations, other psychotic uh, symptoms, seizures, uh, cognitive impairment, and severe uh, tinnitus, uh, vertigo, disequilibrium, uh, going along with these, these uh, life-threatening cardiac uh, problems. Now, of course, if, if someone's having a, a problems with their heart, uh, a little bit of vertigo or disequilibrium or visual problems are not going to be commented on as, as much as, as the mm -hmm. life-threatening problems. Yeah, it gets mixed up with everything else. Is dosage a, a, a problem? Um, I, I'm thinking, you know, there's a lot of complaints that research is done mostly on men. And for women, dosages, you know, you can't just, you know, look at the weight difference and, and figure out dosage from that. But I'm wondering if very old people um, would be maybe more sensitive than younger people and would require a lower relative dosage. I mean, do these experiments you just give the same quantity to everybody? Or is, is there any attempt to um, you know, modulate the dose according to what they think the patient needs based on their body weight, their age, yeah. gender, things like so, that? So, so, so most, with most drugs, you, you typically do adjust for dose to some degree with weight. But with the quinolines, it's, it's unfortunately a, a property of the quinolines that they exhibit a very erratic and unpredictable pharmacokinetics, which, which basically means that most drugs, if you give a unit dose, you expect a unit concentration in the blood or in the serum or whatever mm -hmm. compartment you're interested in targeting, whatever, whatever that is. With the quinolines, you give a unit dose and you may get tenfold or more variation in the concentration in the target compartment. And that particularly applies to the central nervous system. So, so with regards to central nervous system adverse effects, which, which is uh, obviously my primary research interest and the concern of our, um, our organization, we know, for example, with mefloquine, that some people can take a tablet of mefloquine erroneously every day and seemingly not suffer any neuropsychiatric symptoms. And yet other people mm. take a single tablet and 
are left with potentially permanent neuropsychiatric effects. And, and, and one logical explanation for this is that the drug, one unit dose of drug, can result in either very low concentrations in the central nervous system or very high concentrations, depending on how the drug is partitioned and how it moves around in the body. And the, this, is, this is called neuropharmacokinetics, or, or more generally pharmacokinetics. Mm -hmm. And again, the, the pharmacokinetics of the quinolines are very erratic and very heterogeneous, and they're very difficult to predict. And, and that speaks to the inherent safety risks of use of the quinolines. You, you generally want to give a drug that has a, a, a fairly well-known effect in terms of concentration in the, in the target compartment per unit dose. And unfortunately with quinolines, you just don't know. You, you, you see a very wide range uh, in concentrations, not only in the central nervous system, but even, even in the compartments that are um, of more interest in this context, things like the heart. Um, right. And, I mean, and, it seems uh, like at a minimum, uh, they should monitor the blood levels and adjust well, that unfortunately, that doesn't really do much. That doesn't work because no, because the blood is actually a pretty lousy marker of uh, of, of what the concentrations may be in important compartments elsewhere. Okay. So 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 serum serum concentration of the quinolines doesn't correlate very well, if at all, unfortunately. Um, and you can hardly take uh, samples from the heart or the brain. In a living person. Yeah, well, and, that, and, that, and that's true. And, and so basically what you're left with with these drugs is titrating either to effect or to toxicity. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so with, with mefloquine, the, the safety guidance for use of this drug is essentially titrate to toxicity. Continue to take the drug weekly until neuropsychiatric symptoms develop, which is evidence we think that the drug may be accumulating in brain at an unhealthy concentration, in which case stop. And I right. think with use of these drugs against uh, COVID, because there is no approved dose, because we really don't know what, what dose to give, I think a lot of clinicians have been titrating to either effect or to toxicity. Um, and in, in some contexts, that's perfectly reasonable, you know, provided you have proper uh, informed consent. But un unfortunately, it may very well be that in order to achieve the sort of concentrations of the drug that have, we think, antiviral activity in the lab, you may end up having to give many people an essentially toxic or even lethal dose of the drug. And is the dosage of hydroxychloroquine also quite high? Like you were referring to shockingly high quantities of chloroquine, like multiple grams, which is far more than most pills are given. Yeah, so, so, so these, these drugs are, are fairly heavy drugs. So, you know, you're, you may be used to a five milligram or 10 milligram dose of, you know, some common psychotropic drugs. Um, but, but these drugs are generally dosed in the hundreds of milligrams per tablet. Mm -hmm. So with hydroxychloroquine, they're usually 200 milligram uh, tablets. And the, the typical dose for malaria prevention is a couple of these tablets a week. And then for treatment, you may give six or eight uh, of these tablets, you know, at, at intervals over a couple of days. And for the rheumatologic conditions, you're generally giving one or two tablets a day over uh, long-term use. But interestingly, you know, with use of these high doses, a couple tablets a day for the rheumatologic conditions, the, the rheumatologists find that a substantial fraction, maybe somewhere in the order of 10% of people, just can't tolerate the mm -hmm. drugs. They can't, they can't tolerate taking two or three pills a day for a few days. They stop taking it, and they never go back to taking right. it. And, and, and the people that... that 
that do take the drug long-term are typically those that haven't experienced any sort of problems. And, and so the people that take hydroxychloroquine or plaquenil long-term, fr from whom we have derived this sense that the drug is safe, these are people who, by definition, have tolerated the drug. Right. And who haven't. So you've who excluded the people yeah. who have problems so, so, with so, the drug. So my concern is, is that with, with exploration of uh, use of hydroxychloroquine for treatment or even prevention of COVID-19, what you're going to see is you're going to see maybe that same percentage, 5 10% of people who start taking hydroxychloroquine, who, if they were rheumatology patients, would have probably stopped because mm. there are other drugs available. But because of, of the uncertainty around COVID, they may continue taking the drug. And in, in, right. that's, in that respect, I think they may set themselves up for experiencing the more serious adverse effects because it, it's early symptoms with early use of the drug that we think predict the, the permanent neurotoxicity. It's not, something to, it's not something to ignore. Um, no. Uh, you know, it might, might go away because it might get, actually get a whole lot worse pretty quickly if you... Yeah, and, and un unfortunately, the, the only drug of this class that has warnings to discontinue use with, with the onset of such, such symptoms is mefloquine. Now, certainly mm -hmm. with, with mefloquine, a, a very substantial proportion, uh, a large minority, possibly as high as a third or more, but certainly at least 10% who take mefloquine will absolutely, due to the drug, experience symptoms such as insomnia, vivid dreams, nightmares, anxiety, depression. And so the guidance is unequivocal today that if you experience any of these symptoms, even, even a vivid right. dream, stop taking mefloquine right away. Now, with chloroquine, it's probably a little less. It's comparable, but probably a little less likely that you'll experience those symptoms, but, but it's completely reasonable for people to discontinue chloroquine if they develop these symptoms, because the case reports of more serious effects generally have, have included a prodrome. And, and with hydroxychloroquine, we don't know what percentage of people who take hydroxychloroquine at the usual dose rates, a couple tablets a week, will experience vivid dreams, anxiety, depression, et cetera. But, but even if it's one-tenth that of, of chloroquine, uh, or, or uh, mefloquine, you know, you can imagine if, if, if we were to give this drug to millions of people, mm -hmm. many, many, many thousands, tens of thousands of people would nonetheless experience these, these effects. So, so yeah. And if, if, uh, the higher dose and age and, and general weakness of the body <clears throat> increase the risk for side effects, then, you know, it might be, you know, 1% of the general population, but it, it might be higher in this population. We don't, we don't know. It's unlikely to be yeah, lower. So, so the, 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 I think the, the, the safer use of mefloquine requires that the individual be able to identify the new onset mm -hmm. of symptoms that could be due to the drug. And so use, use of these drugs in any population who has impaired consciousness, who may be at increased risk of confounding attribution, who, who may mm -hmm. be more likely to say, oh, it's just my depression or it's just my anxiety. Or, oh, it's the COVID making me feel this way. Use of the drug in any of those populations is inherently riskier, I think, mm -hmm. be because it precludes or limits the ability of the individual to self-discontinue the drug at the onset of these symptoms. That's, I think, really the key for, and, and for use of these drugs. Also, I mean, one of the characteristics <clears throat> that isn't talked about much is that these patients are generally isolated. And so another characteristic of elder patients 
older patients is that they're going to rely on their son or daughter or um, you know other relatives to help them navigate uh, the medical system and they don't have that in this situation so it's going to be a doctor saying we'd like to enroll you in a clinical trial of hydroxychloroquine uh, this 80 year old person who's got a lot on their mind you know can they really make a and in informed decision, it's it's like I'm offering you a lifeline is going to be what they're going to think, right? They they they. Right. I, I'm not sure it would be re true informed consent if they they sign. Yeah. Well, and, and I suppose the the broader point is that it, can you have truly informed consent when the the adverse effect profile of of a drug is is not fully known, or if there are mm. concerns that uh, have been articulated that haven't made it into the uh, consent uh, paperwork. So, so my group and myself, obviously, I, I believe there's a major disconnect between the general perception of the medical community and, by extension, the expectations of the public who are counseled as to what adverse effects uh, may be um, uh, may manifest, and and those that that can and do exist. I I, I think that more elderly rheumatology patients. Uh, than are reported experience troubling neuropsychiatric effects. And, and my suspicion is that just like mil military service members aren't comfortable telling their uh, first sergeant that they experienced a horrific hallucination or a horrific dream and, and want to take a different medication other than mefloquine. I think in, in the same sense that you know, many healthy young men and women uh, are afraid to report symptoms from mefloquine, I suspect that over the years, many uh, elderly rheumatology patients, you know, ni nice little old ladies, uh, to, to paint a picture, pr pr probably don't want to report the troubling neuropsychiatric symptoms they, they have experienced on hydroxychloroquine. Well, or, or they simply don't want to offend the doctor. Yeah, you know, if, I, I if, think that's... If the doctor, yeah. If the I doctor think that's says, true at any age, but it is yeah. probably greater with age. And, and also the generation... Uh, maybe we don't have as much reverence for the medical profession as people did in uh, the 50s or 60s. And it becomes somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy because what you'll hear from the rheumatology community, which somewhat ironically has led the rheumatology community to be in the, the pickle that it's in right now because the rheumatology community now can no longer gain access to these drugs. And it's sort of the rheumatology community's fault because they've said for so long these are very safe drugs. These are exceptionally well tolerated. And the rheumatology community's um, description of these drugs, in, in large part, I think, contributed to, to these recent proponents, uh, uh, these, high pro these high profile proponents saying, look, we have 70 years experience with hydroxychloroquine. The rheumatology community says it's, it's exceptionally well tolerated. All, no, all the people who are taking it tolerate it, and then they don't mention the fact that there's a lot of people who quit because they couldn't tolerate it. Well, it's, it's just ironic, I think, because the rheumatology community now finds itself in, in the, you know very unfortunate situation of, of, of in many cases, ha having to switch their patients to other drugs because they can't get hydroxychloroquine Whoa. at the, the pharmacy. And, and in large part, it's because the rheumatology community has, has insisted for so long that this drug is exceptionally well right. tolerated. So, so had, had the rheumatology community actually been saying all along, well, it's reasonably well tolerated in 90% yeah. of the people, but in 10% uh, 
Um, they will definitely not like it. They'll come to your right. office the next week and make right. up some excuse. They'll say it gave them upset stomach or something, gave them diarrhea or nausea and demand a different drug, which right. is actually the case. You know, this yeah. is generally speaking, studies of, of the, the quinoline drugs uh, in, against rheumatologic conditions show roughly 10%-ish of people discontinuing right. the drug for vague reasons. One of the big proponents of hydroxychloroquine is a uh, French high-profile charismatic scientist Didier Raoult. Um, <laughs> as all I could find was some test tube experiments, but he's been a big promoter. I mean, do you, do you know why he's such a big, I guess not why, but um, have you looked at what he's saying and, and does he have anything you know, special about this drug that, gives, that sure. should give people yeah. hope? Just taking a step back, I think, it's, it, it is and was perfectly reasonable when this uh, pandemic first struck to prioritize or consider hydroxychloroquine very highly as uh, among the leading potential drug candidates. And, and the, the reasons for this are, are numerous. So first of all, uh, the related drug chloroquine was actually shown in test tube experiments 10, 15 years ago to have some inherent antiviral activity against SARS. So given the similar clinical effectiveness of the drugs, it wasn't unreasonable mm -hmm. uh, when SARS-2 or SARS-CoV-2 hit uh, for uh, clinicians to say, well, if chloroquine works against SARS, then maybe hydroxychloroquine will work. And since hydroxychloroquine is better tolerated, maybe we'll have better luck with it. So, so it's it, perfectly reasonable. To, to consider hydroxychloroquine on that basis. And, and the drug has many other potential advantages or, or theoretical advantages. We have, we think, 70 years of good experience with its adverse effect profile. Again, my previous concerns are, are valid, but, but the medical community in general feels that it has a grip on what the adverse effect profile of this drug is, even at relatively high doses. And plus, hydroxychloroquine is ubiquitous. It's, it's off patent, it's produced in many, many countries. It's, it's actually among the eas easiest drugs to synthesize. It, it, it's relatively straightforward to synthesize. And imagining the potential for uh, scaling the drug, mm. uh, it, it, it would be well within the industrial capacity of many nations to scale up rapidly the manufacture of hydroxychloroquine and essentially use it as mass prophylaxis of, of entire countries. So, so I, I think it, it, it was completely reasonable to prioritize investigation of hydroxychloroquine. Now, I, I question the, the rigor, the scientific rigor of the studies that that French doctor uh, mm -hmm. you cited conducted. Uh, I, I think in retrospect, they, they look very questionable. And obviously, you, you should accompany any use of, of experimental therapies like this with very thorough counseling about potential adverse effects. And I, I remain critical that the potential neuropsychiatric risks and even the permanent neuropsychiatric risks of hydroxychloroquine simply haven't been emphasized. But, but that does not detract from the fact that, that if it works, this could be either among the best or even the best uh, a, a candidate for use against uh, COVID-19. But, but unfortunately, uh, with 
the benefit of the last few weeks of, of uh, experience, it, it appears that this early hope for hydroxychloroquine is just not um, playing out clinically. That's not unusual with drugs, right? You get, you, you get a few people with miraculous Lazarus experiences with a drug, and then it goes into a clinical trial and it's a big disappointment. It's not exactly the first time that's happened. Well, so, so I, I, I would say what, what people were hoping for, it, and namely, here's this drug, it's, it's, it's quote, safe, it's been around 70 years, it's cheap, it's, it's ubiquitous, and our, early, and our early experience shows that it has this remarkable cure rate, people citing figures such as 100%. That never happens. It, it never happens in medicine that mm -hmm. the first drug you investigate, that you chance upon, happens to be a magic bullet. You know, the, the, the folks, for the most part, this physician notwithstanding, um, that were commenting very positively about the drug and, and, and sort of staking a, a reopening of the economy and a return to normalcy on this drug, you'll find that these, these folks don't really have much experience in medicine. Mm -hmm. You know, the people that have been around a few years know that, that unfortunately, drug candidate after drug candidate that, that have emerged over the years as, as showing promise have ultimately shown not to be effective. And unfortunately, it, it just doesn't work that way, that, that within a matter of days or weeks, you find something that, that miraculously works. It, I, if I mean, only, if uh, only life were so simple. Yes. You know, but, I mean, a second yeah. problem you kind of alluded to earlier is that it has to be a well-designed experiment. I, I read about uh, a large remdesivir, which is an Ebola drug experiment, and I was shocked to see a reference to a single arm trial. So there's literally no control. So what useful information could you get out of a trial like that? I, I just don't well, see anything. Yeah, well, your, your company's stock price goes up. Well, okay, okay. Well, that, yeah, it went up 16% for Gilead. Yeah. So it had that effect. But um, I think in, like in this British uh, trial of 5,000 patients, which is including hydroxychloroquine separately from um, the antibiotic, which a lot of people talk about uh, together. Zithromycin, yeah. Yeah, uh, zithromycin and some other drugs. It, it is going to be somewhat a controlled trial, but I, I, and I, I think it may be randomized, but it can't be blinded because the drugs are, um, are given in quite different ways. So, so there's so, no way that you could not know what this person was getting. So it's actually, actually the, so, so you're describing two concepts. So you're describing randomization, which is important because you mm -hmm. want to ensure that uh, there isn't some sort of confounding by indication or that the people that get a certain drug get it uh, because of some pre-existing factor that might also uh, affect the outcome. So randomization is important to eliminate certain types of, of confounding. And, and blinding is important because you want to eliminate bias. You, you want to eliminate the potential that you look a little harder for side effects or for improvement in people that you know got a certain drug. And, and, and so, so ran, randomizing and blinding help to eliminate many forms of, not all, but many forms of confounding and a bias. And, and mm. really the standard for, for judging a drug's effectiveness and safety today is to conduct multiple randomized blinded trials. Now, now if, if one drug is dosed weekly and another drug is dosed daily, there are actually fairly simple ways to, to blind that. You give everyone 
a dummy drug every week in the case uh, of, of placebo for a weekly drug. And then you give everyone a, a daily drug, either the real drug or a dummy drug. So it, it, it's, it's, not, it's not that difficult to, to blind people, even with drugs that have different dosing. And even if drugs are injected and so on, you give people sham injections or you give people dummy injections. That, that's you not- could. There was no problem. mention of that in the, in the very nice website that was set up for this trial. And, and I mean, we are, this is being done under extraordinarily rapid circumstances. Yeah. So there, there's not a lot of time for planning, you know, exactly how are we going to disguise um, what the, what's being done from the doctors. And, and in fact, they said that the doctors would be unusually involved in the trial. Yeah, no, I think what you're, what you're describing is the fact that to do a trial well, there, there is actually a little bit of engineering and there's a little bit of systems engineering <laughs> Take some time. that's required. Yeah, and, and all that stuff gets lost in, in the midst of a, of, a, of a panic. I mean, the, the fact is, unfortunately, in the early days of any sort of health emergency like this, uh, you, you have to take action whether you're a public health official or a clinician on the wards, you have to take action with less than perfect or complete um, information. And you know, a perfect example of that is social distancing, right? We've, we've essentially made the bet of a century wagering our entire economy and wagering uh, what is likely going to be a fairly severe future depression on theoretical considerations mm -hmm. um, that suggest, but do not prove, that social distancing will lessen uh, disease transmission. There is no randomized, blinded trial of you know various jurisdictions social. We have a lot of or not. We have a lot of mathematical models to support social yeah, distancing, right. and so far the mathematical models have been a shocking failure more well, than anything so, else. So, so the problem is, you know, no, and no one would argue, I think, against social distancing being a, a reasonable and ultimately among the most valuable of control efforts. But my point is that there's a little bit of hypocrisy uh, out there in the media and the intelligentsia commenting on this, being very critical of the president, for example, mm. uh, touting uh, hydroxychloroquine while blindly supporting non-pharmaceutical interventions such as social distancing, mask wearing, the use of arbitrary six feet distances between people. There's absolutely no high or, quality science. Or in Michigan, it. where you're allowed to go canoeing and kayaking, but not power boating. I'm well, sure there's a solid scientific rationale behind that one. Well, so, so a lot of what we're doing non-pharmaceutically non is completely arbitrary and subjective. Yes. And, and it's based on methodological uh, plausibility. Yes, and, and so if, if, if we are willing to gamble our economic future on what seems methodologically plausible, then, then by, by in that sense, it was perfectly reasonable to also consider use of hydroxychloroquine because, because there was reasonably good evidence, biological evidence, that this drug would have sure. antiviral activity. Now, now I, I, I think in retrospect, we're going to look back and say, well, that was obviously flawed, as it is so many times <laughs> yes. when a drug has activity, antiviral activity or efficacy or efficaciousness in the lab, but doesn't see that in, in clinical right. practice. But, you know, in, in, in an emergency, you need to do something. The, right. the sense is you need to act. Um, but I'm, I'm reminded that, you know, in medicine and, and in public health, first do no harm. Yes. And, and, uh, and I am... I am biased towards doing less uh, and not acting 
until you have fairly good evidence that, that I, I, I what you're doing is effective and won't be harmful. Doing nothing should always be on a, a level with doing something. And um, we have we have pretty much come to the end of our time. So I'd just like to give you an opportunity to get out, you know, one more thing that we haven't talked about that you think is really important, uh, if there is something. Well, I, I will say for, the, for those who, who feel the president's enthusiasm for this drug and the president's willingness uh, and desire to see this drug more broadly used is, is somehow being obstructed uh, by the media or mm -hmm. you know, the, the intelligentsia. Uh, I, I point to the fact that the president has broad authority to direct the wider use of, right. of this drug and has it. For example, you know, despite the fact that our military has basically been sidelined, entire aircraft carrier uh, fleets have been taken offline uh, because of COVID, the president hasn't yet directed the military to use this drug prophylactically, which is well mm. within his authority as commander in chief. And right, I, right. I think that speaks to the fact that even though the president, you know, touts or has been touting this drug, he's, he seems to have stopped, but even though he, he once touted this drug and told people, what do you have to lose? He, he didn't order the military to right. use these drugs. And I, I think that's very telling. And I think it suggests that he actually doesn't have as much faith in the safety and efficacy of these drugs as some might believe. Okay. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, Remington. I really appreciate your expertise on this. And I'll include a link to your foundation in the, in the show notes so that if, if people have concerns about the, uh, the use of these drugs in coronavirus or the use of methoquine against malaria or other things, that they can go and find lots of good information there. That's great. I appreciate it. Great to be with you, David. Okay. Thank you. And goodbye. Take care. Thank you for listening to episode 253 of The Infectious Myth. If you have a comment, question, or suggestion for a future guest, please email me at, at david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com, like us at facebook.com slash theinfectiousmyth, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at infectiousmyth, commit to monthly donations of any amount to infectiousmyth, one word, on patreon.com or liberapay.com. Until next week, thank you and goodbye.